Hey y'all, uh, welcome back to Hollerback Season 2, Episode 6. Uh, this is Billy Deverts. And I'm Stacy Fugit. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Miss Willa Johnson. She is the director of um, the Appalachian Media Institute through Apple Shop, and, which is a really interesting p- program, but I really want her to kind of jump into that right off the bat. Tell us about yourself. Um, and a little bit about AMI. Sure. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being um, here, by the way. This oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> thank you all for having me. I was excited to see uh, and get on and hear some of your podcasts. Um, so very happy to be here. Um, yeah. So my name is Willa Johnson. Um, I grew up in Letcher County, Kentucky. And um I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background of how I found AMI. Um, I went to school at Neon, which is no longer the high school you can graduate from in the county. Um, but it was a really small school, which is 200 students, um, freshman through senior. And I had a passion. I've always had a passion for media and storytelling and journalism. And um, in high school, was just incredibly passionate about journalism and wanted to travel the world and be a journalist and tell stories. And um, that wasn't a pathway that any of the teachers were really talking about. Um, There were no guidance counselors pulling me to the side to tell me what college to go to. Um, Unless you were interested in education or nursing, there really wasn't an an avenue for you. Um, But I had this great teacher who she still teaches, um, Rebecca Potter, who was my journalist, journalism and communications teacher. And um, she got a hold of Apple Shop and they provided a um, documentary club for students after school one day a week. And I ended up being the only student who attended. Um, But this woman, this really great woman named Lydia Moyer from Apple Shop just kept returning because she saw that I was passionate about it. And so she kept coming back every week for one student Um, and I made my first short documentary then, um, and then I, Lydia left and then I felt really panicked as my senior year approached. I had, um, parents who one was sick and one was disabled from a coal truck accident and, um, just felt this panic of like, if I go into journalism, will I get to stay here? Will I get to live around my parents and help take care of them. Do I want to do that? Can't, you know, just all this anxiety hit me at once. And so I didn't actually go to college. Um, and a couple years later I was working in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee at a movie theater, really unsure what I was doing. And someone contacted me and said, you should really apply for the Appalachian Media Institute at Apple shop. It's the summer internship where you can learn to make a documentary. And, um, I just, I really kind of saw it as a ticket home. I would get to come back home, have a job, see my parents and maybe figure out what the next step in my life was. I had no idea how life changing it would actually be. Um, so I was 21 when I moved back home and did the summer internship and I produced a film called the true cost of coal. Um, and at the time it was very specifically about coal to liquid fuel technology. And, um, it just hit a note for people. It it was, it, it resonated with people in a way that I didn't expect. And it also was a way to see my community through a lens in a way that I hadn't seen it before. Um, and so from there, I got to travel really the world with that film. I was able to travel to New York city and present at the Lincoln theater in Boston, at the museum, um, at a museum, uh, in Indonesia, all across the state, um, for like the next year and a half, I just traveled, um, with that film and, and went back to college, um, at East Tennessee state and, um, knew that I wanted to come back at that point. It was, it was this eye-opening moment of, um, there are gifted storytellers and media makers right here, in our own community and there's room for more and you can create art that means something here at your, here in your own home. Um, and it was just this really eye opening moment for me that like uh, this, this 
fantasy I'd had about journalism being this outside world actually existed within my own community. Um, and so I, I did a lot of work with AMI for the next um, eight to 10 years on and off doing mentor positions for AMI programs, coming back um, and giving critique of films. And then I came back for a summer as a lead educator um, and then I joined back officially in 2017 as the elite educator for AMI um, and have since worked my way up to director. Um, so it's just really been a, a huge part of who I am as an adult. It's, it's been the program that I've grown up in and the program that I see the potential of what it can do for other young people, um, particularly young women and folks who feel disenfranchised in this community, um, I see it as a way to provide opportunity for people who feel unseen or unheard. And so I'm incredibly passionate and thankful to be a part of it. Um, so yeah, that was how I got there. But what, what we actually are, um, we are a 30, we're um, a 30 year plus. Let me, I'm, let me rephrase that. You can edit that part out. <laughs> um, we have existed since 1988. And so for over 30 years, we have um, our main priority, our main programming is in the summer. We feature the Summer Documentary Institute where we hire up to 12 young people ages 14 to 22 to attend an eight-week um, documentary institute. And in those first four weeks, we really focus in on what is documentary, um, what is Appalachia, what is it to you, not what have you been taught, but how are you actually living in this community, what does it mean to you, what does it look like to you, um, what are your hopes, what are the things you don't like, what are the things you love, um, and as we're sort of diving into that identity of who and what is Appalachia, we're showing an, an incredible amount of films and art that have been produced, not just about the region, but around the world. And we're talking about after the, after the film, we'll have discussions where we talk about, you know, how did that film resonate with you? What was its impact? Did you see a bias in that film? How would you have shot it differently? Um, and we're bringing in filmmakers from Apple shop who have been there for, some for 50 years from the very beginning um, to talk about the process of media making and, and to have that experience to actually be able to ask a filmmaker about the process and the experience. And then in the last four weeks, they divide off into three groups and they choose what are the films they want to produce about the region and they go produce them. We give them all the professional gear they need, cameras, uh, microphones, computers, editing software, and it's their film. It's their point of view. It's their take on, on this region at this moment in time. Um, but it's a unique moment. It's a, it's a unique look into a moment in time. Every year for 30 plus years, we have a picture of what it looks like to be 18 years old in Appalachia. And that's an incredible catalog of media to have and um, be able to share with the world. And it shows the evolution. I think sometimes people look at Appalachia as, as standing still. But when you go through 30 years of what it means to be a young person in Appalachia, you really see that evolution and you see that growth and you see um, the complexity that exists. And so that's our main programming. We also offer fall and summer or fall and spring labs from everything like 3d printing. Um, this year we're running a literacy program where educators mentor um, high school students who want to become educators to learn how to create lesson plans. Um, yeah, we, we provided the youth drop-in center a space for, for people from the community to come in and be able to access paint supplies, art supplies, computers, um, camera gear, um, uh, just a place to sit and use internet. Um, and so uh, we use that space for a lot of game nights or community workshops like 
budgeting workshops or um, last spring we offered a free prom dress giveaway and hosted it as this huge event that was um, not about charity, but about celebrating the fact that you're going to prom. Um, and so we did giveaways with gift cards that were donated to go eat, to have your makeup done. Um, we collected over 50 dresses and we turned our youth drop-in into a prom dress store. And by the end of that day, we had given away over 22 prom dresses, um, complete with flower bouquets, shoes, jewelry. Um, and it was all organized by high school students and ran by high school students. And um, so really we're just trying to, in the midst of creating media and, and giving artists paid work, we also just want to give a space where young people can feel safe and um, take on leadership roles. Yeah, I think it's, first of all, I've always been a, a fan of AMI, even though I was never um, necessarily involved with it. I worked with Mountain Tech Media through Apple Shop um, when that was still a thing. I'm not sure if it is. Is, is Mountain Tech Media still a thing? It's not part of Apple Shop. I'm not really sure if it still operates or not. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so yeah, I heard about AMI a lot through that internship that I did um, with Mountain Tech Media. And I also think it's a really awesome thing that, you know, you're providing media outlets for youth in Appalachia because, I mean, honestly, Appalachia's biggest export is its people. And that's something that me and Billy talk a lot about on this podcast. Um, and we really just love interviewing people that are finding ways to bridge the gap in, you know, anything that there's a gap in. So, you know, education, Mm -hmm. um, media literacy and things like that. So um, it's really awesome. And thank you for, you know, all the work that you do and in investing in the youth of Appalachia. Yeah, thank you. And, and, and you know, I, I think the way you said that, that's one of the first times I've been able to agree with that statement about one of our exports being people. Um, that's so true. And sometimes I, I disagree with that statement because people will state it as one of our exports is our bright young minds. And um, that one always gets to me a little bit because I'm like, people are leaving, but not all of our smartest people are leaving, you know, like yeah. there's such a community of beautiful artists and gifted minds that, that live here and are doing their best. And like systematically, it's just a hard place to live. It doesn't mean that there aren't really smart and capable people here trying. Um, so yeah, completely agree with that. Yeah, for sure. And you know, something that um, we've talked about on here too is that a lot of people just don't either they don't know about the opportunities or they don't see any yeah. sort of um, they you know sometimes they see their communities as a lost cause but that's not everyone and you know it, it takes a village and so I think there are people you know like you boots on the ground um, who are making people see those opportunities and bringing all that Appalachia has to offer to light. Thank you and and just to say, when I looked at my messages um, to remember the date and time for this, I saw a message where I was like, Stacy, please apply for AMI. <laughs> so we, we tried. <laughs> we just couldn't. We had to share you with Mountain Tech Media, which we were happy to do. Listen, um, they're great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I had a lot of fun. I'm sure. Well, I think one of the interns for Mountain Tech Media had actually done AMI or maybe one of their significant others had done AMI uh, but I remember being like I probably should have done that instead of this because <laughs> I don't think I'm really good um, at you know <laughs> Mountain Tech Media just yet so um, there was a uh, going back to talking about uh, youth leaving leaving the Appalachian region um, whenever I looked online I seen that you were a co-founder of the Stay Project which was something that we've talked about a lot in our Appalachian Studies courses. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So um, I actually was, um, I'll tell you a little bit about how State actually um, started, like the very origins of it, um, where we went to an Appalachian Studies Association conference in Marshall, West Virginia, and um, myself and the former director, Natasha Watts, and another former director, Rebecca Dougherty, and uh, an intern, Brittany Hunsaker, 
um, were there. And along with um, Alandria Williams from Highlander, who just passed the spring, um, passed away, unfortunately. Um, we, we all attended, we all hosted a workshop where we were talking about youth leadership in Appalachia. And um, it was a very strange workshop because there was, there was a group there at the time who was this young, um, this young group who was fighting for environmental justice. Um, But I don't think at the time, all of them had a very good sense of the community they were actually working within and a history, a knowledge of the history of the community they were working in. And so there were some weird statements made um, that were like pretty insulting to us as we were there talking about the work we had done. And Alandria um, uh, was just this amazing force who um, would call people out in a really loving way um, that would, that would educate them. Like she would correct you in a way that I think many of us uh, hesitate doing. And so Alandria corrected this person and used it as a learning moment. And then it came back up again. Um, And so at the end of the session, we were all just like really frustrated and having this conversation of like, we, we realized that we were suddenly constantly being touted out as the young people of Appalachia to all the conferences, to all the spaces, and that we were the only young people from Appalachia that they were hearing from. Um, And that there were all these people who were here doing this work, but weren't educating themselves on the history. And um, so it's just like, it, it was this deeper conversation we had in a moment of frustration of like, we should not be the only people representing Appalachia. Um, all of us, uh, most, every, all of us except Elandria were white and we were there representing Appalachia. We all identified, um, most of us identified as straight and we were there representing all of Appalachia. It was just this very, like this moment of clarity where we're like, one, it should be a more diverse group to why are those people not here? Why are there not more young people part of this conversation? Um, And three, um, how do we educate ourselves so that we can educate others better? And so the result came into like, we needed a support network for young people. We needed a space where young people shared the skills they have they're not spoken over. They're not a seat at the table. They're the table. (laughs) Like they are there controlling the room. Um, and a space where a diverse, uh, a diverse amount of stories was being told and shared and experienced together. And so, um, we started working with various nonprofits throughout the region. Um, we were AMI, Alandria was at Highlander, into East Tennessee, we started working with a group called High Rocks in West Virginia that does leadership development for young women. And um, we just sort of started creating like, what could it look like to have a support network for young, young people? And what does it mean to not allow someone over a certain age into that space? Um, and so it, it has evolved um, really beautifully over the last decade decade plus now um i think in the very beginning you know we wrote for our first grant in 2008 i believe and um we wrote out of a place of knowing that we were missing something but not knowing and not fully understanding what it was and seeing what stay has became and how it's evolving and the work that it does to empower people of color to empower LGBTQ, to um, provide mutual aid um, in throughout Appalachia, not just a specific region of it. It's just incredibly um, powerful to see the way it has evolved. And um, the thing I'm so proud of is that I was able to age out and like transfer it over. I think in nonprofit work, anywhere, not just in Appalachia, but I think it's really hard for that trans, that, um, 
generational transition to happen, to actually have the older generation pass something along, even if they love it. Um, and so having stay sort of put those restrictions on that you have to pass it along um, is one of its main benefits. It's always the same as AMI's catalog of media. It's always growing. It's always changing. It's always current. Um, and so uh, it, it may not have started out. It may not look the way I, it started out in my mind, but I'm so thankful for that. And it has pushed and taught me um, and connected me to more than I ever dreamed that it would. And so, um, yeah, I think it's a, an incredibly powerful tool and program and more than anything at the root of it, it's about connecting young people so that your experience in Letcher County, Kentucky can be shared with someone in Jefferson County, Tennessee or Lee County, Virginia, um, or Huntington, West Virginia, like that, that your stories may look different because of the region you're in, but the shared experience of being a central Appalachian is just, um, it, it bonds us in a way that we're not bonded to many others. And um, so all in all, it comes down to support and, and um, love. And, and even now I'm 35 now and, and so many of my coworkers or uh, co-conspirators in this world who are working for a better world, who are thinking about um, justice and thinking about racial equality and thinking about LGBTQ rights. Um, uh, I met through Stay Project. Um, I met and bonded and built this community for myself that I would have never had living in this region had I not been a part of the Stay Project. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. That's something that we had um, talked about in class and looked at as something that was a program that was really helping the region. So whenever I seen that you were um, a co-founder, I really wanted to bring that up. And when you started talking about uh, youth in Appalachia, I figured it was a good time to do it. So. Yeah. It um, makes me so proud to, to think that you all are talking about it in college classes. I think 21 year old Willow would have never dreamed that that would be a thing. Yeah, it's a, uh, it was part of the course content, wow. but um to to get back on talking about the AMI, sorry, that was my fault. I kind of went off no, track. No, it's, okay. it's part of our history. That's fine. <laughs> um, do you have any examples of documentaries that you'd like to to share with our listeners that have been uh, created in AMI? Sure. Yeah. So we, you know, we have thirty some years of of uh, content that's been created and. Um, uh, there are so many to choose from. One thing I really like about the catalog at AMI is that it is so diverse um, in that it can be, we have films that have been produced around um, what it's like to make horror films in the region. We have um, uh, a film, I'm trying to think of some of the films that stand out in my mind. There's one that's called A Little Bit Normal, and I think it's from 2000, I want to say maybe 2009. I could be wrong about that. It was in the 2000s. Um, but it's it's just following someone who is struggling with ADHD. And, um, and it's interviews with him and his mom about his experience of living with ADHD. And um, it's one of my favorite films that we've produced because it showcases, um, you feel like you're there, you're there witnessing and you can feel like your skin kind of like not being able to sit still as you watch him not be able to sit still. Um, and it doesn't in a way that's like kind of fun and, um, and really highlights what it's like, but isn't, isn't making fun, isn't being critical, it isn't making it sad. It's just showing you what it's like to live with that. Um, and so I really, that's one of my favorite pieces that I show my students um, every year. Um, we've, in the recent years, we've produced films like um, uh, A Dying Breed, which is, you know, we have a huge population of coal miners and folks living in the region who are suffering from black lung disease. 
and struggling to get benefits and struggling to get their rights, um, along with just simply struggling to breathe. Um, and so this piece was made, um, one of our students, Lauren Rose, um, came into the summer and she said, this is the piece I want to produce, which every student comes to us in the summer with an idea of what they want to produce. And those generally shift, um, as the summer goes on and they're hearing more stories and thinking about more ideas. But Lauren came to us and was like, I'm going to make this story. Um, and she held true to it. And, um, she poured her heart and soul into this film and her grandfather was a part of the story. And, um, it's a really beautiful and respectful look at coal mining, um, and coal miners, uh, more so coal miners, um, in our region that really highlights, um, what it's like to live with that disease. Um, a couple years ago, they produced a film, um, called, I was going to make a comment on, on the, uh, black yeah. documentary or the coal uh, documentary. Sure. I, I'm really glad that y'all, um, brought to light that issue um, and sometimes it seems like in the region just because coal's gone people think that the issue of black lung has kind of disappeared yeah but it's not it's something that will go on forever with everyone that has it this isn't something that's just went away since the coal industry's went away so it's it's an issue that really needs to be be kept in the spotlight yeah and be addressed so i'm glad that y'all have worked on that and addressed that issue yeah, that piece has traveled so far. Like it has been shown in California, New York, um, all over. And 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 it's that that what you're saying, like people are not realizing that black lung is still here, even if coal mining is not as active as it was. Um, that is the response we get constantly from folks who don't live here is, oh, I didn't even think about that, or oh, I, I didn't realize that was a problem. Um, and it's just unfortunate because if you ever go to a black lung meeting, you're in a room full of oxygen tanks and people struggling to breathe. And it's really overwhelming. Um, but because it's so integrated into our community and our culture, um, sometimes we forget to highlight it. We forget to raise awareness for it. And so that group did an amazing job telling that story. Um, and one other piece I would highlight, video piece I would highlight is um, a couple years ago, they made a film called The Fallout. And um, it was a really difficult film to make because they wanted to talk about incarceration and what it means to be incarcerated, um, to talk about incarceration policy. They wanted to talk about drug addiction, about um, rehabilitation and but they didn't want to make it a piece that blamed like that victim blamed um and so the piece they made was this really beautiful look and story of what it feels like to live through an addiction and how you recover how you feel after recovery and why that's a struggle i think so many times people don't understand it's so easy to villainize addiction um, but we, if you live in this region, honestly, if you live anywhere in the United States, you know, someone who's addicted and you remember that person before that numbness took over them. And, um, they did such a beautiful portrayal of, of addiction and putting the humanity back into the story and also highlighting the amazing work that's happening in this community. Um, they, they highlighted the Black Sheep Bakery from the Hemphill Community Center that hires folks from drug court to bake bread and make pizzas and invest in their work, um, have real ownership of their work um, as a form of addiction recovery. And, but, you know, there's, there's other beautiful programs like at the Hyman Settlement School where they're, um, uh, Are you are, talking about the School of Blue Three? And yeah. blacksmithing. Yeah, yeah. I actually just interviewed um, Doug Nasal Road, the Master Luther. Awesome. Uh, a yeah. Days ago for uh, Appalachian Studies pro or an Appalachian Music Project. Perfect. And that was something that he focused on talking a lot about was culture of recovery. 
and how there's something therapeutic about manufacturing something and challenging yourself and getting that finished project and being proud of that, that finished project. It's so true. It's so, so true. And it's, it's that way. Honestly, um, it's that way for young people, the same way it is really for anyone. If you give someone something to invest in and feel proud of and be a part of it, it is a, it, it feeds your confidence. It feeds your ability. It feeds your energy versus if you're just talking at someone or condemning someone or talking down, um, it belittles and it scares and it creates anxiety. And so, um, I think this culture of creation is sort of where we're at. It's, you know, it's where we come from approaching youth media is we want to create or not create. They're already here. We want to empower young leaders by giving them the tools to create. And I think it's this, I think people are realizing this with recovery is you can't demonize an addict um, and condemn them and then expect them to get better. What you can do is hand them the tools they need to invest in something other than themselves, other than that addiction and to create and then watch the growth happen from there. So I'm really glad you had that conversation with him. Yeah, he's a, uh, he's a really nice guy. And we talked uh, for about 45 minutes about that. Um, he, he, they've done wonderful things. And that's something he talked about was, at the end, I asked him if there was anything he'd like to add on. And he said that every community has something in their, in their culture, mm-hmm. in, their, in their historical background that they can bring back and keep the tradition alive and use it not just for the benefit of the person who may be practicing that tradition, but also the community as a whole. Yep. And he just happened to apply it to recovery with, with making instruments. But as he said, there's all kinds of other ways that you could, you could do that and help people. Yeah. I think it's just, I think if anything that I wish more people understood um, when they talk about rural America, when they talk about poverty is that um, you you have to celebrate what is here and you have to lift up the culture and tradition that exists and you have to provide um, the opportunity for people to invest in it themselves. Um, just, just throwing things at people doesn't stick. Um, so yeah, I completely agree with him. It's, it's a um, every community and every, from physical community to, to, um, personal community, like addiction or youth or, um, economic hardships. It's, it's, it's finding what fits for that community. It has to be a diverse plan. There's not a one size fits all for everyone. And I think another, um, important thing to note about just that the work that AMI does in general but specifically with these two documentaries that you've highlighted mm-hmm. I think that um you know you know as well as we do that a lot of times when mainstream media comes to our region they come with a narrative in mind um and especially with um the recent Netflix documentary of Hillbilly Elegy you know Uh, which I really want your opinion on that in a second, but I just first wanted to say, um, I think it's really great that, you know, AMI gives kids an outlet to paint a true narrative. Um, And, you know, things being true aren't always rainbows and butterflies. Like I think that Appalachian people are very open to admitting that our region has issues. We don't really turn a blind eye to it, but we're also a very resilient population um, and so it's, you know, um, reducing that stigma um, yeah. around addiction and highlighting black lung and saying that it's, you know, still a really real issue, even though the coal industry is declining. Um, so, you know, props to AMI and props to those documentaries for highlighting those things. Um, but kind of jumping into and this is just an ad lib question something that just came off the top of my head what do you and you don't like we can cut this out if you want to uh, but what is your opinion on hillbilly elegy have you watched it have you read it 
<laughs> so I, I laughed because um, that has been a majority of my work day is that um, the AMI email is now getting inundated with national people wanting us to respond to hillbilly elegy. Um, and so I had to call someone because I was like, I haven't read or watched hillbilly elegy. And like, I don't think that excludes us from the conversation. Um, here, here's, and you can keep it if you want, but here's where I'm at with hillbilly elegy. I have read enough of the counter art articles and the counter narratives but as someone who grew up here and lives here, I, I know enough to know when I don't need to read something. And um, I'm living it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm living here. I'm living the life. I don't need someone who spent some time here every now and then to come in and explain my community to me. I also know that these things get made, they get produced that tell this very narrow sided point of view of the region. Um, and they're going to make me incredibly angry and then they're going to fade away. And then another thing is going to come. So I didn't read the book because I really thought the book would fade away faster than it did. Um, and then I didn't read the book because I just read so many of the counter narratives and books and articles that I was like, okay, no. Um, the movie I haven't watched yet, I probably will break down at some point this winter while quarantined in my house, um, break down and watch the movie. I haven't yet um, for the same reason. Um, I think there's, there's, there are so many, this is what I wish people understood is that there are so many stories of Appalachia and they all look and sound different. And so this one man's view of what the region looked like to him is just that it's what it looked like to him it is not what Appalachia is for the entire world unfortunately most of the world chooses to believe these one-sided stories and these one-sided narratives um and so to me that's what is disheartening is like not so much that he told this and it's not so much that we have to counteract it but it's that the rest of the world sort of isn't the rest of the world's kind of ignorant to how to actually view the region. Like it's always put on us who, who is lacking the, the savviness or the knowledge or whatever to counteract these stories. But I kind of just want to throw it back and say, if you're viewing this and you think this is the entire region and the shared experience of an entire population of people, that's on you. That mistake is on you. Um, we don't have to, we do, We should not have to defend ourselves every time a J.D. Vance pops up onto the, onto the media. Um, so yeah, I, I feel, I feel conflicted in it. I laugh at it because um, I really, really, really thought he would fade a little bit faster than he did. Um, and then the other thing is like, I know enough of quotes and things he has said that really, um, that really frustrate me um, as a foster adoptive mom um, and someone who works really hard to understand um, and humanize addiction. Um, his statement that the only way to get out of the opioid crisis was to arrest your way through it. Um, is exactly the counter narrative to things like the fallout, the film that our youth are producing. Um, arresting your way through things only overcrowds your jails and dehumanizes humans who are struggling. Um, and so uh, that statement has really bothered me. Um, and then the whole narrative of bootstraps, you know, I am someone who grew up in this region. Um, my mom was a teacher. My dad dropped out of high school as a junior and was a coal truck driver his entire life until he was disabled. And so I came from a, a lower middle class, lower middle class family. Um, but I attended college and I've done, I've done all the things I'm supposed to do, but I'm still facing uh, decades probably of student loan payments Um years of medical debt from when my parents were both disabled and couldn't afford insurance for myself. Um, 
I am a professional raising a child who still faces all these hard, I, I can't purchase my own home because we have given this generation just an insane amount of medical and educational debt that we can't dig ourselves out of. And then we say, why are you not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps? And so that narrative is just really frustrating to me that he doesn't, um, him and people like him do not look below the surface of poverty or um, economic hardships of people, not even poverty. Like we don't live in poverty at all, but again, I'm going to have to rent until who knows when, um, because there's no, it's all accountability on our end and no accountability on the system's end. And, um, that's just really frustrating. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) Well, I I watched the movie and, um, there's, if I remember it right, um, there was only a, a short time at the beginning that it was actually filmed. Well, I don't know if it's filmed, but it, it was showing a scene that was meant to be in Jackson, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And that in the short time that they actually show his experience while visiting Jackson, um, the, the yards, of every, all the houses, um, that they, they didn't look great. The, the, the yards are full of broke down cars. Yep. Um, and then the, the families arguing, they're all, they're all together. The family starts arguing, but not too much. It was just between um, Vance's mom and uh, his, his, his mama. But then there is, goes to another scene. He's swimming. Uh, the other youth that are with him are bullies. They actually beat him up. Uh, another guy that's from the same area comes up and he's a grown man and he hits this young man, this teenager. Like it's, yeah, it, it gives a a bad image. Like, okay. He, he may have from his perspective had to deal with bullying because he was from Ohio visiting the region, but that's not everyone's experience. Right. It, it, it's that, it's that, it's that stereotype that's existed for years since deliverance like dumb violence that's that was something that i was going to bring up it's not as i don't think it's as bad as deliverance in that scene because deliverance is pretty violent but um it's right off the bat you get this feeling of nothing but poverty it did have pretty pretty nature in it like the the nature looks nice but it's this idea of violence right off the bat bullying poverty and it, it didn't really show anything more than that yeah regarding that plateau and it kind of left this feeling that there that the issues of violence and opioid addiction was rooted in their origins of appalachia his family origins in appalachia um <laughs> You're making it, me want to watch it now, even though I th- I know I'm going to get so angry. Well, I'm, I'm definitely not trying to promote it at all. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm just saying it gives a, a bad perspective yeah. to people who aren't from the region and who don't, like you said, look into it enough to realize that there's more than that poverty and that violence. And the, the it's, it's it's not good, the, the yeah. opening introduction, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. But, it makes me want to watch it in a way that, like – breaking down media and how and how these things work um and i pro- and that's probably why i will watch it because you know for all the examples we show in ami to show how a story is well told and thoughtfully told thoughtfully and well told are not like you were saying before stacy it's not rainbows and butterflies it's respecting the story right. respecting the people um and and so when when you're talking about the cars broke down in the in the fields and everything or the yards it so one example i always give at the beginning of our summer documentary institute when we're talking about shots and we're talking about angles and we're talking about composition of stories um you know i always teach um that the camera is a weapon and it is it just is we've seen it used for good and we've seen it used for bad um But if I were to tell someone from in the house I grew up in as a young, as a young person, I grew up in a double wide in the head of a holler. And in my mind, it's very nostalgic. And I remember all the beauty from where I grew up. 
But if I were to have told someone from Washington, D.C. or New York to come in and capture my childhood home, I can automatically imagine that picture being from the perspective of like low down in the yard with the bicycle on its side and the wheel spinning and the double wide sitting up on its, on, on its porch. And, you know, my dad's coal truck off in the distance and it would just seem so bleak and sad. But if I were to take that picture, it would have my mom's flowers or my dad's garden or the animal, like the dog running through the yard or the kids playing outside. Like it would just be a totally different perspective because I respect the people who live there enough to see below the surface. Um, exactly. And so that's why it's, you know, it's the same in news stories. Like whenever they go to communities that or places around the world that they want to like, you know, when they want you to see how pitiful and sad it is and they show the broken toy in the pile of dirt. That's that's the kind of sensational media that gets produced about us. And the black and white filter. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. We <laughs> don't live, we don't exist in color. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like, that's my favorite, I think, is everything in Appalachia just black and white. Oh yeah. I um I to the point that like as an artist, I see and love black and white photography. As a human who's been depicted as only black and white photography, I hate it. Yes. I hate it. I'm like, we exist in color. There's (laughs) so much color here. I promise. I think that um, we're kind of in the same boat, Willow, with being so conflicted. Um, I've not read Hillbilly Elegy or watched it um, because I I didn't purchase the book because I did not want to give Daddy Vance my money in any way. Um, But also, I, you know... I've also read Counterposts and um, Elizabeth Cat. I follow her on Twitter or Kate. I'm not really sure how to pronounce her last name. I could have butchered it. Um, but she she um, authored What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And I think that's a really good alternative to, you know, what you could be reading in J.D. Vance's work. Um, my take on it is that could be his perspective, you know, like, and he is entitled to that perspective but in the same vein I think that if he considers himself from Appalachia having spent a couple of summers here with his grandma then everybody from Appalachia can consider themselves from Myrtle Beach because <laughs> we are there all the time <laughs> it seems like it's like everybody I know from Eastern Kentucky I'm like you go to Myrtle Beach for your vacation and it's like like I remember going there as a kid and seeing people that I knew from home you know yeah. like super common um so yeah that's um I think you should write a memoir about growing up in Myrtle Beach now I think yeah I'm wondering if it would take off if it was even if it was like a parody book of yeah like would I get some national media from it we'll see Myrtle Elegy Myrtle old Myrtle (laughs) um kind of you know hopping back on track to um AMI and you know all the good things that you folks do I wanted to kind of touch on and I'm sure you're tired of hearing about COVID-19 because we all are at this point um but you know what has AMI done to kind of you know shift their projects and how are they coping with this whole situation (laughs) yeah yeah it's been um wow what a year and to think it's almost been a year is just insane um But, uh, so when, when COVID-19 was first, um, sort of coming onto the scene, I had actually taken a couple days off and went to Cynthiana, Kentucky to watch my nephews perform in this school event. And so there was like a thousand people in a school gymnasium and we watched my kindergarten nephews sing on class with the whole school and it was adorable. And then I came back and we worked the, um, we worked the uh, prom dress giveaway that Saturday and had over 20 some people in the building. And it was just this really amazing experience. And um, all these girls left really happy. And then the news broke that the first case of COVID had, had been identified in Cynthiana, Kentucky. Um, and so we were like, was I exposed? You know, like those very early days when you just don't know, like we just didn't know how it worked or how like at risk we were. And even now, in that situation, I would be like, oh, um, 
so I actually quarantined before the state shutdown happened. <laughs> um, I was like, I'll work from home these next two weeks. Um, and then when the state shutdown happened, it became clear like that our summer documentary Institute just wasn't going to get to look the same. It just, it just, there was no way it could function in person. Even if things had been lifted by the summer, we couldn't have organized it that quickly. Um, to the level that we usually do. We have guest speakers and artists and trips. And so we just knew it wasn't going to function the same. And so, but we didn't want to completely cancel it. I think people would have understood had we canceled. Um, everything was getting canceled. Um, but we, what I, what I saw in this moment was this opportunity. Like we're talking about the lack of representation in the media of Appalachia and of rural America. Um, and what I saw was this opportunity is like all these images were coming out of people on balconies playing music and people in cities wearing masks. And there was no representation of what it looked like to live in rural America during a pandemic. Um, and so we decided to bring on a guest educator who is Benny Becker, who has produced a lot of really amazing uh, radio. And um, instead of hiring new people this summer, as we were shifting to learn how to teach online curriculum, how to shift gears completely, we decided to bring back our interns from the summer before. Many of them had already applied to, to work this summer. And usually we bring back like maybe two returning interns, but we decided to bring back seven returning interns um, and uh, to give them a new task. Um, typically in the summer, we say there's no theme we're not going to tell you what to make. We're just going to ask you to produce something that represents your community. And this year it, it felt like we couldn't escape the elephant in the room. And so what we did was we said, you can still tell your story. You can still choose what topic you want to cover, but it has to address how COVID-19 is impacting the community. And instead of video, because teaching video and getting um, computers and cameras and all the gear you need to produce video and produce it well to the standard that they're used to. It was just too complex to figure out how to get everything to them and too expensive on time. So we purchased um, laptops and audio gear and um, everything they needed, including snacks and um, we feed, we always have snacks in our SDI program. There's always popcorn, popsicles, um, ramen noodles. <laughs> so we um, packed all their traditional snacks that they like and they picked up all their gear. Um, and they spent the summer learning how to produce an audio series that um, their pieces stand alone. So you can listen to all seven pieces individually, or you can listen to them as a compilation, as a podcast. And so the series they ended up creating was called A Mask on the Mountains. And um, they covered topics. They chose topics to cover like, um, how does this impact the foster care system? Um, which included things like, how does it impact single mothers? Um, it in, and how does it impact biological parents? Um, it included things like, uh, what does it mean to be incarcerated in a pandemic? Um, what it what it means to be dealing with domestic abuse, um, the fear of losing your athletic scholarship when everything's being shut down, um, losing your cultural uh, events and uh, um, opportunities if you're a musician. Um, yeah, so it, it was a it was a variety. What it means to be black in rural America and America in general and facing a disparity in healthcare and why this was impacting communities of color at such a higher rate than white communities. Um, so they produced these really beautiful, this really beautiful series. And one thing we always do at the end of our summer, Apple shop has its own theater, which is really unique and special to have, and it can seat up to a hundred people. And so at the end of every summer, after they've worked so hard on these, on this media, we invite everyone we can think of to attend a screening and to watch their pieces live for the first time. 
And usually we have a sold out theater. Everyone gets stressed up. We have a Q&A session. And we were really missing that this year because we wanted to celebrate the fact that they were creating professional, thoughtful media in the midst of a pandemic when most of them had been kicked out of college early to come back home and, and, and uh, surprised by um, that they were still doing this work. So what we did was um, we also have our own radio station, WMMT. And so we hosted a community listening session and um, we advertised online to tune in to WMMT at seven o'clock and listen to the series of audio pieces. And we had a DJ come in and introduce them and talk about the filmmaker. And then we asked folks to get onto our AMI page on Facebook um, where we went live with a Zoom session and did a Q&A on there. And it ended up being one of my favorite things we've ever done because I don't know how much it, how much your family has ever talked about what it meant to sit around the radio with their family growing up. But for my parents, it was a big part of their childhood um, was to sit around the radio and listen to UK ball games or to sit around the radio and listen to election returns. And so having their families sit around the radio to hear their pieces for the first time and then getting to get online and talk to them about it, um, it, it just was this really special moment. And we had a lot of participation and people who joined in. So that was exciting. And those pieces um, are on our website, amiappleshop.org. Um, but those pieces are incredible. They're incredibly powerful um, and, and give me chills and, and um, are still being circulated within the media today because they're one of the only looks at rural America um, during a pandemic. It's one of the only, it's one of the only well-published things out there that really focus on what it means to survive during this. Um, the other thing we've done is just shift all of our programming to online Um you, typically in the fall, we have one fall lab where we offer like a class one to two nights a week in photography, 3D printing, narrative filmmaking. Um, this year, because we're overachievers, apparently we offered three workshops. Um, so we just wrapped up our archivist, Caroline Rubens, um, planned this really beautiful found footage workshop with the students from the summer. And she taught them how to go through archival footage that exists and create videos based on that. So there are these really artistic um, experimental pieces that have been made um, that we just debuted for the staff this week and will debut, I believe, next Friday for the public online. Um, we have been working with Rebecca Potter, who was my teacher in high school, um, to teach live streaming uh, courses so that you know, um, one of the things that has existed for rural America and Appalachia is that we are in a technology divide in America. Um, if it's not the lack of access to equipment, it's the lack of access to quality internet. Um, and now suddenly in order to be safe, we all have to have these things to exist. Um, and so we have been providing gear um, that they can check out and lessons for her class. We teach live stream, uh, live stream courses for her class one day a week. And so now her students are able to live stream football games and um, church services and music sessions. Um, and so we're seeing them do more of that, which is really exciting. Um, and then we had planned to do this literacy, the, sorry, we had planned to do this literacy workshop in person <laughs> pre-COVID um, and have shifted, but we um, we got a we got this grant from the Still Reese Foundation to um, to teach uh, to work on literacy development in our in our in our community, and we didn't want to approach one age group with this work. We wanted um, everyone to have a way to celebrate reading and how it connects to activities and um, just get to have this shared experience with people. Um, and so we have hired 
four teachers from the school system here in Ledger County um, to teach every Monday night. They teach a two-hour class to seven um, interns who are juniors and seniors in high school interested in education. They're teaching them how to create a lesson plan and engage young students with an activity that's STEAM-related, science, technology, engineering, arts, mathematics-related. Um, and then in the spring, they will um, teach these now virtually online to first grade and kindergarten classes within the region. And so they'll teach a storybook and then they'll do an activity with the students. Um, and, uh, and so that will be our fall and spring lab is to finish up our educator project. Um, but we just, uh, the idea was that by involving teachers, high school students and elementary students, that it is truly a community um, collection of excitement and knowledge and energy to um, lift up the importance of reading and connect um, connect why literacy is so powerful and um, to just have it be more community investment rather than us planning a program for just one age group. Sorry, that answer was a little rambly, but. <laughs> oh, no, it was it was perfect. You actually uh, covered one of the questions that we were going to talk about. Um, so we'll, we'll go on to uh, another question of how can young folks in the region get involved with the Appalachian Media Institute? Yeah, so the the answer I always give and I feel like it always feels um, generic, but I promise it's it is the best way to follow us is to follow us on our Facebook um, which is Appalachian Media Institute. Um, we always are hosting uh, these three series of labs, the spring, the fall, and then our summer documentary institute. And so anytime we have an opportunity, we advertise on there. Um, and the other thing I'll say that I didn't really highlight on here is that we pay um, for these opportunities. And in the summer, we pay a competitive wage because when, if you're investing your time, we know that that means you're giving up the opportunity to work somewhere for the summer, but also your art, you should be paid for your art. It is some, like, I think that's something we struggle with as artists is figuring out the value and what we make and you should be compensated for the work you do. So we, these are all paid opportunities. Um, but yeah, we advertise whenever our our um, applications are up, whenever we're looking at new programming. Um, we always are looking for, in, in typical traditional world, we're always looking for screening opportunities. Um, we often will go to colleges and pr um, present our films for classes or for student groups. Um, we have traveled with community groups. Um, yeah, so I think uh, no matter what age you are, we're always looking for a way to work within the community um, or to provide opportunities for young people. And even if you are not from Letcher County, we still, we work with students from all over the region um, when and if uh, it's possible. So um, if, you're, if you're interested in you, or I'm sorry, if you're interested in media, and you're between the ages 14 to 22, um, reach out to us, have a conversation with us. Um, we're always happy to figure out ways to make things work for people. And if not for us, we can connect you to other people or other opportunities. So, um, you know, we are doing our best to lift up our community as a whole. So don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can also check out our website, which is AMI appleshop.org and that's a-p-p-a-l-s-h-o-p gotcha yeah and we'll put that in the um synopsis of the episode that can be found on our soundcloud um one last question thank you so much for your time first of all again um but are there any you know current projects that you're working on whether they be you know personal or with ami or with apple shop in general just anything that you'd want to talk about or plug before uh, we hop off of here today. Um, 
I mean, I could plug things all day long because I work in an organization <laughs> full of artists. Um, one thing I will say is if you're looking for something to do and you're looking for some way to get out of your house um, and just <laughs> be out moving around safely, um, I've been telling people even locally, um, if you haven't been to Apple Shop lately, go to Apple Shop. It is, um, we've been doing all this work to lift up regional artists and to invest in their work and to also um, invest in Apple Shop grounds and, and to reflect the art that's being created inside on the outside. And so in the last couple of years, we've built a solar pavilion, which um, we also have solar panels on top of the Boone Youth drop-in. But Apple Shop is completely solar powered now because of this pavilion. And it's just this really beautiful structure that has picnic tables underneath it um, and a concrete stage. And so I tell people all the time, like, go grab dinner and then come eat outside. You can eat outside. You're protected from the rain, whatever. Um, under this pavilion, it gets you out of your house for a minute. Um, but we've also created a rain garden. We have um, a new glass um, sculpt, uh, yes, <laughs> we have a new glass sculpture up that's, um, patchwork quilt inspired. We have a new mural on the Boone Youth drop-in. We have these beautiful new photos on the side of Apple shop. It's just the, through 2020, we have continued to invest in our building and our space and our community by making it as beautiful as possible. And so that's some of the art that I'm the most excited about right now. Um, because you can just, it's, it's, it's there, it's there in your face. It's touchable. It is, um, actually contributing to the community around it in a way that's so desperately needed. Um, and it's providing people a, a space when they need it the most to be safe and to be able to see each other. Um, outside and so yeah come out and and just enjoy the pavilion enjoy the apple shop grounds a little bit um and then as for my own personal art projects um i'm currently working on a series about uh i, I haven't i haven't been able to wrap my mind around if it'll be audio or visual but um, working on a series of thoughts and ideas about what it means to be a foster adoptive mom, um, clearly because it impacted my life so much. Um, but that's, that's sort of the work I'm working on right now is just trying to take four years of knowledge and condense it down into something that's, um, uh, able for other people to absorb. Yeah, I've been following, uh, you know, we've been friends on Facebook for quite a while now. Um, so I've been following your journey with being a foster mom and I'm really happy for you. Um, Thank you. And that's awesome. Um, yeah, Billy, do you have any lasting, any last thoughts that you want to throw out here to us? Uh, no, besides this has been a really good episode. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, we covered a lot of topics. Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's something that I love um, about this podcast is we always have like a foundation of questions, but you know we throw in a little a little pizzazz here and there. So right, that's what makes a great interview. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Willa, for um, joining us today, and I will shoot you an email and let you know um, when the episode is you know edited and up and all of that good stuff. Um, it's been wonderful talking to you and. Hopefully you'll see my name on some applications to apply at Apple Shop. I hope so. I hope so. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you so much again. In the meantime, I'm Stacy. And I'm Billy. And we'll holler at you later. <laughs>